Good afternoon, everyone, including those of you watching or listening online. Appreciate your uh, participation, even though you're not able to be here physically with us. One of the identifying marks of a true Christian is faith. The word for faith in the Greek New Testament is pistis, which means belief. But what kind of faith is necessary to be a Christian? It's not just any belief, but a particular belief that is the mark of a true Christian. We read in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now notice here that the faith described is not just believing that God exists, but believing that God rewards those who diligently seek him. Now diligence implies effort, it implies action. And so the kind of faith that God requires of us is a faith that is reflected in diligently seeking God, seeking His will, seeking to live His way of life. We read in, we read in uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 4, Hebrews 11 and verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of His gifts, and through it He being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So we see here that Abel, through his actions, obtained witness that he was righteous. We find that Enoch through his behavior, pleased God. And these were, these were uh, actions that were motivated by faith, by godly faith. Going on in verse 7 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. So we see here that faith is accompanied by action and it is action which has to do with righteousness and obedience to God. The faith manifested in these verses indicates sacrificing to God in a way that pleases Him and pleasing God in other ways, being motivated by godly fear, by righteousness or righteous conduct stemming from faith and obedience to God's commands. We find in many places in the Bible that genuine faith implies obedience to God's commandments. In Revelation 14 and verse 12, 
Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here is a definition of what is a saint that is a true Christian. The saint is simply one who is holy, and this implies one who has been sanctified by the Spirit of God and is thus converted, genuinely converted, who has the Spirit of God abiding in him. And it says that a mark of, the, of those who have that Spirit of God is that they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Again, we see obedience to the commandments and, and the faith of Jesus are integrated, are connected with one another. The faith of Jesus, the faith of God goes hand in hand with obedience to the commandments of God. In a Messianic Psalm from Psalm 40, Psalm 40 and verse 7 we read, then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Now Jesus quoted this psalm when he said in John 6, verse 38, beginning with verse, uh, John 6 and uh, verse 7, I guess it is. John 6 and verse 7 he said, basically quoting the, the very words that I just read from Psalm 40, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So Jesus was motivated by a desire to do the will of God. And that was reflected by the law being within his heart. In other words, the law abided in his heart, in his mind, and directed his thoughts and his actions. So we are reading about what is required to please God and what constitutes genuine faith in God. We might ask then, what is apostasy? Apostasy is the opposite of godly faith. Apostasy is a false faith, a false belief. It is a faith which produces disobedience to God and rebellion against His commandments. Yet the path of apostasy, the path of rebellion, is the path that mankind has followed for the most part since the first humans were created. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the historical record of apostasy against God. Now, you might ask, why is this important? It is important because understanding what ha has happened in the past can help us avoid the same mistakes in the future. And it can also help us better understand the prophecies of the future and what to expect in the days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. But before we get into the historical record of apostasy, let's further define what is meant by the concept of apostasy. The word apostasy is from the Greek word aphistemi and cognate words. 
Pephistomy and its cognates are used a number of times in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Now these words, epistome uh, and its cognates, do not always have a negative connotation. For example, Gamaliel, a highly respected leader among the Jews, advised the Sanhedrin not to interfere with the work of the apostles of Jesus when we read in Acts 5 and verse 38, Acts 5 and verse 38, Gamaliel speaking to the Sanhedrin or the high council, the uh, supreme council among the Jews, the governing council. He said to them, now I say to you, keep away from these men, speaking of the apostles, and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now the word translated keep away here in the, in the New King James Version in verse 38 of Acts 5, or as it's translated in the King James Version, refrain, is a form of the Greek word ephistemi. Sometimes the word is used of rebellion against human government. For example, in Genesis, we read of a rebellion of the rulers of the cities of the Valley of Siddim, into which ran the Jordan River against the king of Elam, whom they had been subject to. And so we read in Genesis 14, verse 4, 12 years they served Kedar Laomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Now the word translated rebelled from the Septuagint is the Greek word apestasan, or excuse me, apestasan, apestasan, which is a cognate of aphistemi. And uh, essentially it means rebellion or to rebel. And as it's translated in this context from the Septuagint. But several times in the New Testament and the Old Testament, aphistemi and cognate words indicate unfaithfulness through rebellion against God and his laws. Now, as noted in the theological dictionary of the New, uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, generally apostasy against God finds as, and I'm quoting from uh, that source, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, apostasy generally finds expression in a disobedient cultic and ethical worship of other gods. In other words, what they're saying is that apostasy is often expressed in false worship. But apostasy could also be manifested in any kind of rebellion against God and His law, and we'll see that, I think, as we proceed. In short, an apostate is a rebel, and apostasy is rebellion. And there are many examples of apostasy or rebellion 
against God in the Bible and in the world in general, and the Bible has many warnings against apostasy. Anyone is an apostate if he is in a state of rebellion against God. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery states that, quote, there are at least four distinct images in Scripture of the concept of apostasy. All connote an intentional defection from the faith, end quote. And these images are rebellion, turning away, falling away, and adultery. Apostasy is, is uh, placed in uh, association with all of these, uh, you might say, images or modes of expression. Rebellion, turning away, falling away, and adultery. And these words are used various places in the Bible in connection with apostasy. So let's run down briefly a list of apostasies that are discussed in the Bible, and then we'll take a closer look at some of these apostasies. And this is not an exhaustive list, it's only sort of a summary, but it will give you an example of the space the Bible actually gives to the subject of apostasy and examples of apostasy. A list of apostasies discussed or alluded to in the Bible would include Adam and Eve, Cain, the pre-flood world, Nimrod, the Egyptian Pharaoh, Israel in the wilderness, Israel and Canaan, Saul, Solomon, other kings of Israel and Judah, false prophets in Israel and Judah, the people of Israel and Judah in the era of the kings, Jewish leaders and the populace under the influence of Antiochus Epiphanes, Jewish leaders at the time of Christ, false teachers and apostates among the New Testament church, false teachers and apostates in the Dark Ages following the New Testament era, false teachers and apostates in the Middle Ages, false teachers and apostates in the, era, in the eras since the Middle Ages, false teachers and apostates in the future, and apostasy after the millennium. All of these are actually referred to in the Bible itself. So let's review in somewhat more detail, some of the apostasies related in the Bible record. In the Bible record. Actually, one, of the, one that I did not mention, and the first apostasy that the Bible discusses in, in terms of its um, chronology was that of Satan the devil, who originally was an archangel who was directly under God at the top of a hierarchy of angels. We read in Isaiah 14 and verse 12, of this archangel, in Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken to the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the 
heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. So we see that this archangel called Lucifer here decided to rebel against God. And he, in, in essence, what it tells us is that he wanted to kick God off of his throne and take over God's place. In Ezekiel 28, verse 11, Ezekiel 28, verse 11, says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, the king of Tyre here is put as uh, a metaphor for Lucifer. As we will see, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. So we see it's not just talking about a physical human king. This is talking about an archangel, the, uh, the one of the terms for an archangel is cherub. And so you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. And you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So again, we see Satan rebelled, and in response, God essentially kicked him out of heaven, out of his presence. And Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God cast him out of heaven down to the earth. And this rebellion is also alluded to in the following, in Revelation 12, beginning with verse 3. 11, Revelation 12, verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars, of heaven and threw them to the earth. And stars here is a metaphor for angels. Satan took with him in his rebellion a third of the angelic host who became demons. And Satan continues in his rebellion against God and is the chief instigator of apostasy against God among men. In Revelation 12 verse 9, goes on to tell us, Revelation 12 verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. It deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So that was the first apostasy that we have any record of, the first rebellion against God.
The next major apostasy of, of note in the Bible is that of the first man and woman. And it was through their rebellion that sin entered the domain of mankind. In Genesis 2 and verse 15, Genesis 2 and verse 15, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as I've explained before, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil really means the tree or the, the uh, taking on the authority to decide what is good or what is evil. In other words, to make your own rules, your own laws in opposition to God's laws. And that's what God forbade to Adam and to Eve. We read, though, in Genesis 3, beginning with verse 1, Genesis 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now this serpent was not really a serpent. This is a, another metaphor for Satan, as we just read in Revelation. That serpent of old was the devil and Satan. And he was an archangel. He was not a literal physical serpent or a snake. He was a powerful spirit being who was brilliant and appeared to Adam and Eve as an angel of light. And yet he was, the reason he's, he's uh, the, this term serpent is used as a metaphor is because serpents are among the uh, best camouflaged of any of the beasts of the earth. And Satan makes himself appear to be something that he's not quite often, as he did with Adam and Eve. And he was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat, of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. In other words, their outlook changed. They were naked before, but they had no, no consciousness of uh, no shame in being naked or uh, didn't pay any particular notice to the fact that they had no clothing. They were just the two of them, husband and wife. That does, This isn't a, <clears throat> a justification for being nudists or running around with no clothes on. But uh, it was just the two of them. They were husband and wife. They were had not been clothed. But after 
they ate of this garden, they began to feel ashamed. They had a sense of having done wrong. And uh, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now God knew, of course, all along what had happened, but he, he realized that they had a conscious, a conscious awareness that they had done something displeasing to God and they were trying to hide from God as a consequence. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to, uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And so Adam and his wife Eve sinned. The greater sin was Adam's because he was the one who was first created and he was the head of the family. And he should not have followed his wife's example in eating of this fruit that was forbidden, but he did. And so we see in Romans 5 verse 12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now the next rebellion that we read, that we read of in the Bible involved Cain, a son of Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 4 and verse 3, Genesis 4 beginning with verse 3, we read, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Abel was Cain's brother, who was born after Cain. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well... Sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So Cain rebelled against God and against God's law, having offered a sacrifice which was not in accordance with God's will or requirements and was not pleasing to God. And as a consequence, he became bitter against God and bitter against his brother, and he murdered his brother, 
in, in, in uh, disobedience to the laws of God. And in 1 John 3 and verse 11, 1 John 3 and verse 11, it says, This is the message which you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was a rebel. He was an apostate. And that led him into this sin of murder. As the world grew in population, the leaven of sin spread and Cain's brand of apostasy and rebellion spread to nearly all mankind. In Genesis 6, verse 5, Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the entire world was afflicted with this apostasy, with this spirit of rebellion against God. And as a consequence, the earth was filled with violence and evil to the point that God decided that the only solution to this problem was to destroy what he had created with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals that he spared by putting them on the ark with Noah and his family because he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. And so we read in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. After the flood, men began to multiply once again on the earth, but it wasn't long before a corrupt and violent leader arose to lead mankind in rebellion once again against God. He became the focus of a false system of worship, which has since been passed down from one generation to another to this very day. We read in Genesis 10 and verse 8, Genesis 10 and verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, 
Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. This was in the Middle East where Iraq is today. And <clears throat> Nimrod was evidently a very powerfully built individual who became a hunter of beasts, perhaps even men as well. And uh, he built these, uh, these cities, or he ruled over them at least. And in uh, Gill's, John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible, it says uh, concerning uh, his comments on Genesis 10 and verse 9, it may be remarked that as Nimrod and Bacchus are the same as before observed, one of the titles of Bacchus is Zagriv, which means an hunter. Cedrinus says that the Assyrians deified Nebrod or Nimrod and placed him among the constellations of heaven and called him Orion. The same first discovered the art of hunting. Therefore, they joined to Orion the star called the dog star. However, besides his being in a literal sense a hunter, he was in a figurative sense one, a tyrannical ruler and governor of men. The Targum of Jonathan is, quote, he was a powerful rebel before the Lord, and that of Jerusalem, quote, he was powerful in hunting in sin before the Lord. And another Jewish writer says he was called a mighty hunter because he was all his days taking provinces by force and spoiling others of their substance, and that he was before the Lord, truly so, and he seeing and taking notice of it openly and publicly and without fear of him and in a, in a bold and impudent manner in despite of him. In other words, what they're saying, what these Jewish writers are saying is that Nimrod was a rebel. He was an apostate, an enemy of God. And according to Gill, the Septuagint should be rendered in this verse, verse 9 of Genesis 10, that he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. We read in Genesis 11, in Genesis 11 and verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. 
Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And the word Babel is a word that means confusion. Now, here's what Josephus writes concerning the Tower of Babel. This is from Josephus Antiquities, Book 1, Chapter 4. Josephus says, Now the sons of Noah were three, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, born 100 years before the deluge. These, first of all, descended from the mountains into the plains and fixed their habitation there and persuaded others who were greatly afraid of the lower grounds on account of the flood. And so were very loath to come down from the higher places to venture to follow their examples. Now the plain in which they first dwelt was called Shinar. God also commanded them to send colonies abroad for the thorough peopling of the earth that they might not raise seditions among themselves, but might cultivate a great part of the earth and enjoy its fruits after a plentiful manner. But they were so ill-instructed that they did not obey God, for which reason they fell into calamities and were made sensible by experience of what sin they had been guilty. For when they flourished with a numerous youth, God admonished them again to send out colonies, but they, imagining the prosperity they enjoyed was not derived from the favor of God, but supposing that their own power was the proper cause of the plentiful condition they were in, did not obey him. Nay, they added to this their disobedience to the divine will, the suspicion that they were therefore ordered to send out separate colonies, that being divided asunder, they might the more easily be oppressed. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson, to, grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power that is, Nimrod's power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. So we see that in this account of Josephus, virtually the whole world, once again, were in a condition of apostasy or rebellion against God. And this is confirmed in the scripture, although in a much more brief manner. Goes on to say, Josephus Antiquities, 
and they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work, and by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high sooner than anyone could expect, but the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly, since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners, but he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages and causing that through the multitude of the, those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that language, which they readily understood before, for the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Alexander Hislop in his book, The Two Babylons, remarks, quote, <clears throat> Now the ancient traditions relate that the apostates who joined in their rebellion of Nimrod made war upon the faithful among the sons of Noah, end quote. And he backs up his statement with some quotations from ancient sources. It's believed by Hislop and other researchers that many of the customs of pagan religions now spread worldwide were invented by Nimrod and his wife, often called Semiramis, although it's believed that she had a number of other names as well. The name Nimrod itself is related to the Hebrew word Marad with the same Hebrew letters, except that Nimrod has the Hebrew letter Nun, pronounced like the English letter N, prefixed to the consonants Mem, Resh, and Dalet, or letters equivalent to English M, R, and D. And so, in Hebrew, the word Nimrod is the same as Marad with the noon prefixed to it because Hebrew is written in uh, only in uh, consonants <clears throat> and uh, with the vowel sounds added this would be anglicized as Nimrod the word Marad means to be rebellious or to revolt and some scholars believe that the Hebrew meaning, meaning of the name Nimrod is rebel an article by Abiram publication suggests that the word Nimrod in Hebrew means he rebelled or to be rebellious. And certainly this definition fits his character as a rebel against God. The Bible uses the name Babylon, the city built by Nimrod or ruled by, at least ruled by Nimrod, the city where under Nimrod's leadership, they sought to build the, the tower in defiance of God. 
The Bible uses the name Babylon as symbolic of, as we read in Revelation 17, verse 5, Revelation 17, verse 5, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. In other words, the Bible confirms that Babylon is a fount of evil, a fount of rebellion and apostasy and false teachings. The final rebel against God that I want to discuss in today's sermon is Pharaoh, king of Egypt. As time passed, it finally came to the point where God had prophesied for him to deliver the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. God chose Moses to go to Pharaoh and, command, and demand in the name of the eternal that he was to let the people of Israel go free. But as God spoke to Moses telling him what his mission was to be, God told Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 19, Exodus 3 and verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And so we read in Exodus 5, verse 1, Exodus 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So, exactly as God predicted, Pharaoh refused to heed Moses' words, which were spoken to him in the name of the eternal God. And so time after time, Moses was sent with the same demand to Pharaoh from God. And God sent plagues to put pressure on Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let the people of Israel go. But each time there was, each time there was relief after one of these plagues, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not yield to God's demands. Finally, God struck all the firstborn in Egypt so that they died. And Pharaoh then let the people go. But after they had left, Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued the Israelites with his army. When the people of Israel reached the Red Sea to the east of Egypt, they were trapped between the sea and Pharaoh's army, or so it seemed. But we read in Exodus 14, Exodus 14, verse 24, now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. And he troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, 
on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Well, we might ask with this object lesson at hand, was that the end of apostasy for mankind? Now, you might keep in mind that Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that particular time and one of the most advanced civilizations, if not the most advanced. And uh, essentially, after this series of plagues, Egypt was in chaos and devastated. So you might think that not only Egypt, but the rest of the world would have learned a lesson from that. You'd certainly think that at least the Israelites would have learned. But was what happened there the end of apostasy for mankind? Was it even the end of apostasy for the people of Israel, whom God had liberated from slavery? The answer is, unfortunately, no. The history of mankind's rebellion against God was just getting started at that point. In a future sermon, I hope to, to continue the review of the history of apostasy and also discuss how we can avoid being apostates ourselves or falling into apostasy. These examples are in the Bible for a reason. There are lessons we can learn from them. And it's very important that we learn the lessons that these examples teach.